when you think about it, so many children that have been taken from us through abortion, nearly 60 million alone in our, or I should say, nearly 60 million in our country alone since 1973. But not only through abortion have children been taken from us, uh, children have been taken throughout history through illness, war, senseless violence. A lot of children who are missing from among us. Now that, I think, leads to a very old question. A question that people have been asking for as long as we have been missing these children. It's a question that I spent time a couple years ago answering with us, and this morning, going to spend our time answering that question again, and I'll explain why in a minute. But the question is, could be worded in many different ways, but the question is, where are all of these children right now? Where are all these children? Where do these babies go when they die? I think more than some that that is an extremely important question, an extremely practical question, a question that gets at the very heart of God. Where is the baby that was miscarried? Where is the baby that was aborted? Where, is, where are the babies that have died in wombs? Where are the babies who have died in childbirth? Where are the babies who have died in cribs? I mean, think historically. We're talking about I don't know, billions of eternal souls. Every one of these children, an eternal soul. So this sermon is, is meant to answer that question and meant to help us think about biblically an answer to that question. But this is a sermon also about the sovereignty of God. So we're talking about the sovereignty of God. You'll hear that. We're talking about the sinfulness of mankind. You'll hear that. And we're talking about, I think, most importantly, the goodness and the mercy of God. This issue of abortion and that question of what happens to children or infants when they die gets to the very heart of the goodness and the mercy of God. And many people struggle 
when they see things like rampant abortion that is, believers believe, at the very least, allowed by God, it, for many believers, compromises the goodness of God or the mercy of God. Now, the way God has wired me is that I have a sort of compulsion I've found a sort of compulsion to think about and to reason the goodness of God in really difficult places. So I find that when I think of the goodness of God and the mercy of God, and then I come up against a really difficult place to understand the goodness and mercy of God, like what we're talking about today, I have almost a compulsion to think through and to wrestle through and to reason through as best I can biblically. How could God possibly be good in that? How could God possibly be sovereign over that? How could God possibly be merciful and allowing that or ordaining that? And I want to personally work through biblically and spiritually as best I can and as far as I can go, the answers to that question. And that happens just through things you run in in life and in your own life and in headlines you read. But you don't even have to leave the Bible. So I come across Scripture like in Isaiah or Hosea where I'm reading about the death of infants, not just the death of infants, but the killing of infants, the dashing of infants on rocks. And I'm, as you are, I'm horrified when I read that. And yet, I believe, rock solid believe, Psalm 119, 68 is true. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. But I'm wrestling when I read that passage in Isaiah and I read that passage in Hosea and I hear that nearly 60 million children have been aborted just in our country since 1973. So I believe, God, You are good and You only do good and You always do good, but now I'm wrestling when I hear this and so I want to biblically be helped any way I can. And I want you to be helped biblically in any way you can. And I think you're helped and could be helped as I'm helped by answering this question that many Christians avoid, but haven't historically avoided. And that is what happens to babies when they die. So before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, help me to think well and to teach well this morning and help all of us to think well and to listen well this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope you understand my heart this morning and my motivation this morning. 
six biblical observations that I'd like to make today that lead me to draw the following conclusion. And I'll say this conclusion twice. So here's our first run through it. All those who die without the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation are saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ, being innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief by which they would have been justly condemned to eternal punishment. That's a big conclusion, right? And it's a big conclusion because I don't want to just be sentimental in answering this question. My goal is to be biblical in answering this question. So let me read that conclusion one more time, and then we'll get to the six supporting observations that I'm going to challenge all of you to think about. The conclusion drawn for me, again, is all those who die without the ability to see and understand God's revelation. That includes infants within the womb, infants outside of the womb. That includes toddlers. That includes small children. That includes even adults, in my mind, who have severe mental handicaps. So that's who I'm thinking of when I say all those who die without the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation. They can't see it and understand it like most of you and me. When they die, they are saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ, being innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief by which they would have been justly condemned to eternal punishment. So now, let's work through fairly quickly so that we don't lose sight of the goal. Six biblical observations that lead me to believe this. Just think about this with me. Observation number one, no baby dies apart from the will of God. No baby dies apart from the will of God or everyone dies exactly when God planned for them to die. So, I believe that. Everyone dies. You're going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die exactly when God has planned that you would die. He has numbered your days. We know that no baby dies apart from the will of God because we know that nothing happens apart from the will of God. So, this is included. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Daniel 4.35 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And Amos 3.6 Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? These are familiar verses to many of you. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. Including the death of infants. Or including the death of a spouse. Listen to what George Mueller said at his wife's funeral in 1860. Three lines. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. The Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. The Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Do you believe that? Number two. All children are sinners at conception. All children are, by nature, sinners at conception. Now, I'll show you this, but if it's true, that means the answer to this question, where do babies go when they die, can't be babies when they die go to heaven because they're not sinners. So can't, the answer can't be that. We're, we're ruling that out with observation number two. Because all children are sinners at conception. When you see this beautiful Baby born, they are not morally neutral, clean slates. They have inherited from mom and dad, along with everything they've inherited from mom and dad, a sinful nature. Now, I know you think your baby is not included in that. But those who have babysat your... No, I'm just kidding. That is true, though. Testify. They have inherited Adam's sinful nature. This is what Romans 5 teaches us. So you, you can go to Romans 5 and you can read the support for this. They have inherited Adam's nature. They've inherited Adam's guilt. They are sinners by nature before they're ever sinners by choice. Psalm 58.3. What did David say? The wicked are estranged from the womb. There we go. It's very clear. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Genesis 8.21, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. All children are sinners at conception. Now, some, believe it or not, have based upon that clear doctrine of depravity, 
Some, based on that doctrine, have found their answer to our question. And their conclusion has been that because all babies are born sinners, they, upon their death, go straight to hell. Now, for most of you, even if you don't have the verses, you just have a gut feeling, most of you, that that cannot be true. And that's interesting. Charles Spurgeon, who believed this observation, all these observations, actually, that we're going through this morning, he was accused of, because he believed in depravity, he was accused of believing that all infants who die in infancy go to hell. He had this to say in response, in his typical fashion. Among the gross falsehoods which have been uttered against us is that we hold the damnation of little infants. A baser lie was never uttered. There may have existed somewhere in some corner of the earth a miscreant who would dare to say that there were infants in hell. But I have, met, I have not met with him, nor have I met with a man who ever saw such a person. We say with regard to infants, Scripture saith but little, and therefore, where Scripture is confessedly scant, it is for no man to determine dogmatically. But I think I speak for the entire body, or certainly with exceedingly few exceptions, and those unknown to me when I say, we hold, that all infants are elect of God and are therefore saved. And we look at this as being the means by which Christ shall see of the travail of His soul to a great degree. And we do sometimes hope that thus the multitude of the saved shall be made to exceed the multitude of the lost. I don't know. Billions and billions and billions. The damnation based on total depravity of all infants who have died may seem like a logical conclusion, but if it's true... It's interesting, observation number three. It's interesting that there is not a single biblical account of an infant being condemned upon their death. However, there are biblical accounts of infant salvation. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. The sermon text that Greg read us. And let's look at verses 13 through 23. Our main text here. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, here is the chain of events that are leading to this text. David has committed adultery uh, with a married woman named Bathsheba. So David did that. She became pregnant. And so David had her husband killed. David's spiritual advisor, whose name is Nathan, he comes to David and he tells him a story. 
And he tells them the story to bring conviction on David for what he's done. He's confronting David. It works. And David responds and is sorrowfully repentant. That gets us to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That is good news for David. That is mercy for David. Nathan says, you're not going to be punished for this sin. You should die. You should die for what you've done, but you are going to be forgiven for this because, looking forward, your punishment, we know, was taken by Jesus in your place. So he gets that good news in verse 13. But verse 14, Nathan said, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. What a consequence to his sin. His baby is going to die. And he's told this beforehand. No baby dies apart from the will of God. Including this child. Is this baby who will be born to David a sinner? Yes. Does David know this? Yes. I quoted his verse. That was his verse, Psalm 58, 3. David knows this. From the womb, we, including this baby, we go astray. So keep that in mind. Let's read on. Verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Can you imagine this? So God does not take this child quickly. God's up to something with David. The child first becomes sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. So seven days of pleading, not eating, pleading, weeping, mourning, pleading with God, will you please not do what you said you were going to do? On the seventh day, the child died, verse 18. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. You're with this, I hope, emotionally. And you can, as best you can, connect with what you're being told here in the narrative. This is all very understandable. He mourns over his sin, David does. 
He mourns over the news of what God has said is going to happen to his son. And he prays. Now, as a side note, we should never stop praying. We should never give up in our prayers. Think about what David is asking God to do. Think about what he is pleading with God to do. He is pleading for God to not do what God explicitly told him he was going to do. And none of you have even that obstacle to your prayers. Right? And yet we can give up. A great example he was. But in the end, his request was denied by God. Verse 19. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. This is surprising. This is not what the servants expected, was it? He's in bad shape when his son is sick. How bad a shape is he going to be in when we tell him his son is dead? We're afraid he's going to hurt himself, they said. They assumed his condition would worsen. And instead, what does David do? He gets up. He cleans himself. He changes his clothes. He went to church. He ate some food. Why does David respond this way? It's a good question. Why does David respond this way? Let's get to an answer to that question by doing this. In a few chapters in 2 Samuel, in a few more chapters, David will lose another son. You remember that? David loses another son. His name was Absalom. Absalom does not die as an infant, does he? He dies after rebelling against his father, trying to kill his father, sleeping with his father's concubines on the roof of the palace in rebellion to his father, ultimately in rebellion to and rejection of God. And David's reaction to the death of Absalom is very different than his reaction to the death of his infant son. Let me read you his reaction. It is stark, the difference. 2 Samuel 18, 31-33. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news from my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, 
Is it well with the young man Absalom who was part of this rebellion? Is my son okay? Is his concern. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Which meant what? He's dead, King. Like he should be. How does David respond? Verse 33, The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. you see the difference? To spell it out, when the first child died, David's mourning stopped. When the second child died, his mourning started. Let's go back to our text in 2 Samuel 12 to hear David's answer. For the difference. Why are you acting this way at the death of your infant son? Then his servant said to him, verse 21, What is this thing that you have done? You, you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. He knew God very well. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. From verses 21 through 23, which I just read, David knew that it was gracious of God to take his baby, in a sense. He knew his son had been saved from the troubles of this world. He knew what, for example, Job knew. And many of the greats in the Old Testament, this truth that we're drawing out. That there was God's grace in being stillborn. In dying in infancy, there was God's grace there. Which is why people like Job will say things like this. Chapter 3, verse 16. Or why was I not as a hidden... And Job, is he's what? He's suffering. He's suffering greatly and deeply. Why was I not as a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. 
What does Job have to believe to say that? It would have been better that I had miscarried? That's what he's saying as he's suffering. It would have been better to bypass this troubling life and immediately enter into, what does he call it? Rest. Does he mean hell, do you think? No way. I think David thinks the same thing. David knew he would be reunited with his infant son. Where did we hear that? When David said, I shall go to him. People have tried to explain some different meanings of that, and I have not been persuaded at all. David says, I shall go to him. That's his reason that he's not mourning in the same way anymore. I shall go to him while with Absalom, he knew he was never going to be reunited with Absalom. He died in rebellion to God. And so he wept and he mourned and he cried out that I wish I could have died instead of you, Absalom. In short, he knew that his infant son had died and gone to be with the Lord and he knew that Absalom had not. And there, is there anything that could more grieve a parent than that. No way. No way. How did David know that? Well, I think David probably understood what we can understand from Scripture, and I think he understood our last three observations here. Number four. Infants do not have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation. The thinking caps might need to go on at this point. We could stop at those three. I think we could. And you could be confident and encouraged. But let's go deeper if we can, and I think we can. Number four, infants, for example, do not have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation. Neither do very young children, neither do some who are severely mentally handicapped. They have not yet reached what some would call a condition of accountability. Not an age of accountability. There's not a magic age. The Bible never gives an age. But is there, and I'll show you in Scripture, a condition of a, the condition being, I can see, I have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation. There's a condition of accountability. If that condition has not been reached, I'm proposing, then according to Scripture, that individual will be, according to Romans 1, with excuse. 
at the day of judgment. Romans 1, 18 through 20. Listen to what Romans 1, 18 through 20 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now listen to the them and the they of these verses. He's talking about a them and a they. They suppress the truth, for one. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, now let's remember what Paul's doing in Romans 1. We know that those who hear the gospel. Christians, don't we know this? We know that those who hear the gospel and reject the gospel will not be saved. We all know that. Okay, have you been asked by your kids yet? What about those who never hear the gospel? Every kid asks that question. They see all the loopholes. It's great. They challenge you. All right, well, what about somebody on some island and the gospel? They don't have a gospel. They don't have the Bible. No missionary. That's a big question, isn't it? That's the question Paul's answering in Romans 1. That's the question being answered in these verses. They still, even if they haven't heard the gospel, They, what is he saying in Romans 1? The they and the them. They will be condemned and damned because they still, though they haven't heard the gospel, they have willfully, right, willingly rejected God though they have seen His invisible qualities and His glory. They've seen enough and perceived enough and understood enough to know there is more. And it comes out in their suppression of the truth and their denial of a God or their making up a God that suits their purposes. That's like it or not. That's, that's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1. They are therefore without excuse. Okay? So, the question is, what about those who have never seen and understood God's invisible qualities? Those who are not suppressing truth. Those who have not been shown the kind of shown that is talked about in Romans 1. Those who don't have the perceptive ability. They are, I believe, with excuse. John Piper said, so I asked the question, okay, about this verse. Is the principle being raised here that if you don't have access to the knowledge that causes you to be held accountable, therefore you will not be
be accountable, and I think that is the case. So we're just going deeper here. Based on these observations, we're just going deeper to see if we can get a biblical understanding of how the salvation of infants would be true. Absalom had that access. He had that ability. He had seen and understood God's revelation. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord and he had rejected God. Absalom had reached, as some would call it, a condition of accountability and David's infant son had not. And so they were dealt with very differently by God, I propose. And they were certainly dealt with very differently by David. As is clear in 2 Samuel 12 and 18. Number five. Because infants do not yet have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation They are innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief. Now hang on. Some of you might be thinking, did we just contradict an observation we already made? Because I thought we said, and we did back in number two, that they're all sinners. They're all sinners. So how can we now say that they are innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief. Well, listen. With observation number four, we're not contradicting number two. Please don't hear me saying that infants are innocent. Infants are not innocent. But, specifically, they are innocent of willful disobedience. Willful rebellion. Willful rejection. Give them time, and every last one of them will get there. Because, number two, they are sinners by nature. But they are not yet committing willful, evil deeds. God makes this clear by making a distinction in Scripture. So that may seem common sense to you what I just said, but let me give you verses. God sees a difference between adults and children in this way, where they are sinners by nature, not yet sinners by choice. We don't have the luxury of saying that. Both and. Deuteronomy 1.39 And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey... And your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. You hear the distinction? They have no knowledge of good and evil. That means something. Isaiah 7, 16, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So there's a distinction being made here. Ezekiel 16, 20-21, where God is angry because His people 
are following the example of the neighboring peoples and they're sacrificing their children. And listen to how God refers to those children they're sacrificing. And you took your sons and your daughters, your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children? He said, you sacrificed your children. But now he says, this is the anger behind it. You have slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them. They're his children. But not everyone's a child of God. And the distinction made by Jesus in Matthew 19, 13 through 14, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He is addressing a beautiful and wonderful quality of children there. And they're, though guilty sinners, their willingness and readiness to believe in and follow a good God. You're never going to meet a three-year-old or a four-year-old with good, godly parents who teaches them about God and teaches them the gospel to say, I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe God is good. I reject the gospel. You're not going to find that. There's something wonderful there in a child that's worth imitating. Finally, number six. Let me just read them all together so that it comes with that sort of course. Observation number one, no baby dies apart from the will of God. All children are sinners at conception. There is not a single biblical account of an infant being condemned upon their death. However, there are biblical accounts of infant salvation. Number four, infants do not have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation. Number five, because infants do not yet have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation, they are innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief. And now finally, number six, therefore... Because infants do not yet have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation and are innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief, they are saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ. All those in heaven will have been saved by grace. The Bible makes that clear, doesn't it? All those in heaven will have been saved by the grace of God. 
the Bible makes something else very clear. All those in hell, look up all the verses. All those in hell will have been damned by their willful works and deeds. From Genesis to Revelation, read about the condemnation of man, and it is always in accordance with their willful, wicked works and deeds. What about these infants? Maybe that explains why there is no examples of infants being damned or condemned in your Bible. David's infant son was saved like you and me completely by grace. David's son Absalom was condemned by his wicked deeds and his willful rejection of God so that eternal punishment was God's last judgment of him. So this gets at the very heart and character of God. And I think this is a place where we can go biblically to answer these very practical questions, these very difficult questions. God, so many, back to what I said at the beginning, so many children we've lost. How are you good? This infant that is not yet done anything wicked or evil. This infant, how will they grow up in hell as those who grow up in heaven? How, how will they grow up in hell and have any conscious understanding of why they're there and see that your judgment is just? I mean, these are the kinds of questions, again, that I wrestle with and ask myself. And try to search the Scriptures for. Martin Luther, I think, was right when he said that God's judgment is His strange work. And His mercy is His common work. Do you know what that means? God is merciful and God is just. He's all of the above. But you see clearly and feel clearly God's Heart, he's trying to think of words, in his mercy. That's why you have verses that say things like God takes no pleasure. It's getting to the heart of God in the death of the wicked. Oh, he will send the wicked away from him because he's a just God. But he doesn't enjoy that or take pleasure in it. It says that he does not willingly in Lamentations 3 afflict the wicked. But you have other heart verses that say he desires, another heart word, that none should perish. He desires that all men would be saved. So again, at the end of the day, you have God displaying his glory through mercy and justice. But when we back up and get to the heart of God, we have these verses. I desire mercy. His judgment is His strange work. But God's mercy, God's grace is His common work. I think that's supported in those texts we looked at.
So let me close. I hope this is encouraging specifically to those of you who have lost little ones. Whether children who died when they were very young, whether they were children who died in childbirth, for those of you who have miscarried a child, for those of you who have had an abortion. Okay? Let me quote, as I think he says so tenderly, to the surprise of some, John MacArthur. So when an infant dies, he or she is elect to eternal salvation and eternal glory. So dear one, if you have a little one that dies, rejoice. Count not your human loss, count your eternal gain. Count not that child as having lost, but having gained. Having passed briefly through this life untouched by the wicked world, only to enter into eternal glory and grace. The true sadness should be over those children of yours who live and reject the gospel. Don't sorrow over your children in heaven. Sorrow over your children on earth that they should come to Christ. This is your great responsibility, your great opportunity. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that Your Word is not as silent as we sometimes think it is. And so, I thank You, God, for the truth that can be found in Your Word to, I believe, support the conclusions drawn this morning. And God, if this truth is helpful for some, God, I pray that they would believe it, but not out of sentiment, but because they've found it to be true in Your Word. God, help us in everything to live this way, to live our life to, to interpret what happens in our life through Your Word. Help us to see and to think deeply about these lives. Help us to see truthfully and help us then to live in a way that, that blesses You, God, that honors You. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.